Welcome to the Community Conversations Podcast. I'm Chaplain Captain Caleb McCary with Chaplain Major Jeremy Plevka, a special guest host today. And we're going to be talking with Captain Benjamin Ordway about an article he recently wrote for Special Warfare Magazine called Developing Soft Moral Reasoning. Chaplain Plevka, how did you meet Captain Ordway? Thanks, Chaplain McCary. It's a pleasure for me to be uh, co-hosting this podcast with you today. And I, I do want to let you know that Captain Ben Ordaway and I met back in February at the CAC Ethics Symposium that we both attended at the Maneuver Center of Excellence in Fort Benning, Georgia. And we have this special interest in all things moral and ethical. And so in our time there, we just had a couple of opportunities to dialogue with one another, and when we left, we traded contact information and have remained in contact over those months and have had the opportunity now to come together and spend an entire day talking about this idea of moral ethical reasoning and moral decision-making. Captain Ordway, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your military experience and the program that you just finished up and where you're headed to. Yeah, uh, again, I guess I'd say thank you for having me. Uh, did not expect to be on a podcast uh, when I came down here, but it's a uh, delightful opportunity. Um, I just finished a few weeks ago uh, at University of Michigan, a master's in philosophy with a focus on ethics because I thought that was most applicable to my military service. And I'm on my way to teach uh, one year of philosophy at the United States Military Academy, and then two years at the Simon Center for the Profession of Military Ethic to teach their capstone course called Officership. Um, I am currently a civil affairs officer. Prior to that, I was an armor officer, and quite a while ago, I was enlisted as a cavalry scout. So I leveraged that experience as enlisted as an officer in the regular military and now in SOF to develop uh, the model that I hope we're going to talk about today. Well, Kevin Ordway, as I mentioned in the intro, you recently wrote an article for Special Warfare magazine, and it's called Developing Soft Moral Reasoning. And then the subtitle is Preparing Humans for Hardware, W-E-A-R, on the Moral Terrain. I just wanted to walk through a, a few points that you make in that article and let you kind of speak to them, because I think you have some really great ideas that are beneficial not just to the chaplain corps, but uh, to the army writ large. One of the things that you say in the article, and I'm quoting here, if one is unaware of the moral reasoning that leads to an action, or if one's moral reasoning is corrupted, any talk of higher order ethical reflection is likely to be unproductive. What do you mean by that? This idea that uh, higher order ethical reflection is unproductive if our moral reasoning is corrupted. Thank you for the question. Um, this is a question that gets asked in different ways about why, why did I decide to focus on moral reasoning? Uh, most recently it was asked by a former U.S. SOCOM chaplain who took issue with the focus on moral reasoning as opposed to ethical decision-making. And the concern was that we kind of acknowledge we're in an increasingly morally pluralistic society with folks coming into the military with increasingly diverse views on what constitutes right and wrong. Uh, I accept that that premise is true, but I also accept that beneath those, beneath that diverse um, body of perspectives on right and wrong, there is quite a bit that we hold in common. 
if we can unearth it. And that's the goal of the education and training that I am proposing is, yes, people come to the world, uh, to the military rather, with their own interpretation of what is right and what is wrong. How much more necessary then, if it is so diverse, for that to be exposed so that when they're on a team, the team can know who they have around them, uh, what their perspectives are. And then once you have unearthed that moral reasoning uh, process that each individual goes through, whether they're kind of uh, aware of it or not, then you can actually engage in ethical reflection, which makes you more equipped as a team to be able to uh, deliberate ethically and to conduct action according to the professional military ethic and with, you know, within an understanding of the team's ethics and where they intersect and um, diverge. That's just important to know. I just like, I want to know who can shoot on a team and who cannot. I want to know where each person on a team in an organization is so we can either meet them where they're at and develop them, or we can sustain where they're at, uh, you know, when they demonstrate that they've kind of got what we're looking for. So uh, what I hear you saying is that uh, even in a, a diverse and, and pluralistic culture, which uh, the Army is a reflection of, that, that diversity and pluralism, uh, whether you're talking uh, religion, ideas, or thinking, that you believe there is uh, a moral core there, that it is necessary to unearth and to, to understand uh, in order to have a better functioning organization. I think we have a starting point within each of us, and I, I'm intentionally not paying attention to um, some of the folks who slip through assessments and selections or recruiting. Um, I'm focused on the majority of folks who I believe, and this is a hypothesis, that most folks wake up uh, in the morning when they put the uniform on and seek to do good or at least to follow the cultural norms that uh, surround them. Um, so with that in mind, assuming a good faith actor I believe that once we get into a little bit more of the detail here, that when they're exposed to a situation that involves moral content, um, which elicits kind of an emotional response, that will show that we have far more in common to work with that unites us as a team that helps us be more cohesive in, in the healthy sense um, to get the conversation going so that the first time we have a disagreement about what to do, what's right and wrong, isn't when it matters immediately. We can do it in a training event. So having those those hard conversations uh, about uh, moral and ethical issues in advance, instead of of waiting for that high stakes event where that require uh, high stakes decision making, we kind of have an awareness of that going into it. Right, and we can practice. Uh, I just don't, you know, we I don't know if we should always focus on the the big name cases or the, the most extreme examples uh, like um, black hearts or, you know, anything to do with uh, Eddie Gallagher, because in an, in an air conditioned environment where I'm in a classroom and you, you whip out that as an example, my gut reaction is I would never do that. That's, that's just beyond the pale. That is clearly illegal, violates all kinds of, you know, morals, uh, their behavior, et cetera. Um, it's in the small, day-to-day -day interactions that we have. And it's the plenty of opportunities within the existing training that we have where we can build a little bit uh, kind of a resiliency, moral resiliency within the organization and an awareness of where we're at so that should we, God forbid, be put in a situation or, or get ourselves into a situation as often happens 
which calls for kind of that in extremis, high stress, uh, high moral stakes um, situation. It isn't, we're actually familiarized and we've been exposed in small ways in safe environments prior to, so that we're more equipped to handle those situations and come back not fractured, come back with our, our reputation and more importantly, you know, our sense of who we are intact. So I'm hearing a couple things here that, that really resonate with me. Uh, I'm hearing echoes of virtue ethics, where this idea of the, the, the practice of, of, an, of doing an action repeatedly helps to build character and, and shape a person's uh, moral framework. And I, when I hear that, I also hear a lot of what the Army does right? You go to the range and you train and you train and you train over and over. The army understands training. The army understands repetition when it comes to things like marksmanship, but it sounds like you're saying that's a critical thing when it comes to character development as well, is the the practice of doing the right thing, making the right decision over and over in the small things so that when it is on the line, we can make the hard decision when it, when it counts. Uh, that's precise. I, I wish you should come teach the class for me. That's, 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 <laughs> the, this is a, uh, my opinion, uh, based on my, you know, experience um, as enlisted in regular military, regular army, and within the special operations community, that this, I believe that commanders actually care about um, kind of the moral foundations within their organization and the ability of service members to make the right calls according to their professional military ethic. I believe that's true. I think that this domain is kind of relegated to the, it's nice to get to if we have time. Uh, it is, it is, of course, it's important, but you can tell really what's important based on where it falls on a training calendar. And if it falls on an LPD during a lunch break, that kind of gives you an indicator of the importance of it. However, we do not do that with any other training that we hold valuable. Like I, I, don't, I don't go to a, a voluntary LPD on how to shoot my weapon because that is a fundamental aspect of being you know, an infantryman, for example. Uh, I did not learn about how to drive an Abrams on PowerPoint. Therefore, this is more fundamental than those. You know, shoot, move, communicate. This is what guides you in when to shoot, how to communicate, where to move, why to move. I, and that's something I'm trying to kind of motivate is this comes before all of the equipment, all of the training that you already are providing a soldier. This should be as equally important um, as that other training. And I don't think anything I'm proposing is actually going to disrupt the training calendar or to get in the way of um, you know, it's going to require more resources. I think that to your point about practice and persistent practice is that you already have a training calendar that offers myriad opportunities to elicit an emotional response that has a moral component to it that is already there. You just need to look for it and accentuate it. And you train, you already mentioned, you go to the range and the range and the range. Well, as a soldier, as a specialist, I did not appreciate being at the range day in and day out with my body armor on at Fort Bragg, you know, just sweating, wondering why I couldn't take it off in the break area, for example. Well, I, I made sense when I was in Iraq, and we could not take our body armor off, and I had to shoot under various conditions. 
there is an opportunity at each time we are at the range to practice this as well, this moral reasoning and ethical decision-making. So where we don't have to worry about taking away a lunch break um, down the road, you can practice it as you're practicing those other metal tasks. So I'm a commander and you referenced this in your article a little bit. Uh, Why can't I just assume that uh, the soldiers who are coming into my unit have a, a, a fairly robust moral formation. Well, why shouldn't I just uh, assume that? I mean, they're coming in, um, you know, they've been raised up in whatever their background is. They've gone through basic training, AIT or whatever, and, um, more advanced if you're uh, talking about the soft world, which you reference in, in your article. Why can't I just assume that they're coming to me uh, very well morally formed individuals? Uh, again, this is an opinion. I do not remember in any of my you know, various military experiences um, being specifically and explicitly assessed, evaluated, coached even. Uh, it was very personality dependent who engaged in kind of this domain with me about, hey, this is what you need to do when you're there. I wouldn't recommend this based on my experience. I regret X, Y, Z. There's no, to, to my understanding, and I, and I hope I'm wrong, there doesn't seem to be a systematic approach to this throughout, you know, a service member's tenure in the military. Um, and even if the mil- regular military, to some extent, we do inculcate the army values, for example, there, there are blocks of instruction at basic. We know this, you know, I went to West Point, West Point does have a significant focus on character development. Um, even if the education is there, let's assume that let's assume that the military understands education uh, and has that down and it is systematic. I think we can agree that the training aspect is a lot more personality and unit dependent. It matters if that commander, that chaplain, or that psych um, is really interested in this and is willing to take it into the applied realm. And we, I don't think we can rely on personality dependent training when we are intentionally putting people, at least in the soft realm, um, into significantly sensitive environments where the decisions require moral wisdom, you have to train. And Aristotle would agree, it takes practice. So we're not relying on new knowledge here. This is thousands of years old, and I I hope I'm repeating it and doing it justice. Um, It takes practice. If you're not sure if the practice is taking place prior to you receiving the service member, you as a commander, as a senior NCO, as a leader in the military, have an obligation to assess it, to coach it, just like we don't take anyone's um, experience with a firearm for granted. I come from the Midwest where hunting is kind of a way of life. To put food on your plate in the winter, you shoot deer or rabbits. I had some exposure to firearms as a kid. They weren't that exciting to me by the time I became a teenager because I was exposed to them. I roughly knew the fundamentals. The military did not assume that I was trained on this when I got in. I had to go to the range like everybody else. I think we should take the same approach when we receive a service member into our organization to continue developing them because it is, I mean, as we gain in wisdom, the problems that we are exposed to increase in complexity. Therefore, you're never trained enough on this. You're never exposed enough. And that's the nature of life. So why don't we, why don't we address upfront that it is a complex, difficult, you know, path from point A to point B in our life and that commanders have an opportunity to influence and to train 
to prepare the service members to answer the hard questions when they're deployed. That's a great point. I, I think about, you know, just about every promotion ceremony where I've been to, one of the lines that I hear almost all the time is, you're promoted, that's awesome, you're getting more pay, but you're also getting what? More responsibility. Uh, and so this this sort of training and thinking is uh, something that continues on throughout one's military career, not just uh, a block of instruction in basic training or West Point or, or whatever. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, we're going to kind of transition a little bit here to talking more about models. In your article, Captain Ordway, you say that the current models talking about uh, army ethical, military ethical decision-making models, they imply that we can process moral terrain data like glitch-free software. What do you mean by that, 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 that they have that implication in them? I guess first, just to, we use the term moral terrain, I think, frequently throughout the military. I just wanted to build on that, use language that people are already using. There are overlays on a map that we are aware of. We got the Maku, uh, you know, to tell you where where you can and cannot travel based on the type of platform you're on. Um, we have the enemy overlay, the sit temp. We have the friendly overlay. We also have the moral domain that is this invisible overlay that if we just decided to expose it, we could really predict some of the problems. Just like you can see a maneuver corridor, you can see I should not go here because I will go off a cliff. If we evaluate the moral terrain that way, a commander can predict and can help color in that overlay or help that team start to develop and anticipate some of the opportunities for moral courage that they will have or some of the opportunities for moral transgression that might be exposed by the environment, by the situation, by their character as they're, as they're you know, bringing that into the, the situation as well. So, but because, this is, again, uh, an opinion, because we don't actually explicitly often include that overlay, so to speak, in our planning, in our preparation for deployment, it's, to me, it seems like, well, then it must be an assumption that service members have what it takes already. They were selected for a reason. They're adaptive. Um, they are, they are you know, smart folks. Most of them have a degree for what it's worth. Uh, they're a little bit older. So it seems to me we assume away this complexity. And then I look at the models. And I say, I think the models underline that assumption that service members either have what it takes or even kind of ironically that they're actually not human. And I realize that's a bold claim, and that's kind of why I allude to this in the title, Preparing Humans for the Hardware. Uh, that's kind of a play on, you know, the soft truth, Special Operations Forces truths. The first one being that humans are more important than hardware. Well, then I look at the models, which are algorithms, which strike me as software. Um, and if you, and I'm sure Chapman Plath is going to get into this a little bit, but these models don't seem to have much humanity in them. To me, that seems like, okay, we have a model that doesn't actually address the human experience here. We have a model that really looks like someone took some computer code and wrote it down and wished away the very complex and sometimes difficult aspects of humanity, which is we have emotions, we have temptations, we have biases, we have the opportunity to morally disengage. Well, the models as they stand are essentially troop-leading procedure models that follow a, identify the problem, develop a course of action, uh, evaluate the course of action, 
execute course of action. And of course, if you have time in the military, reflect. That's always like, go stretch on your own. Right. Reflection. And kind of the fundamental uh, argument I have against most of these models is that the minute that you develop a course of action and then expect that you're going to, without any motivated reasoning or moral disengagement or cognitive biases at play, that you're going to evaluate the course of action as an objective individual, I think just violates what we know about moral psychology, much less moral philosophy. Um, I think there's some room to improve on the models as they currently stand. So you have uh, come up with some ideas on how we can approve or, or, or models that, that we can incorporate. And so I want to throw this over to Chaplain Plevka. Uh, one of the things that you say in your article is operational units must explicitly incorporate ethics education into field training. It is only through connecting new knowledge with practice in an applied environment that we may realize and improve our moral reasoning. Chaplain Plevka is the ethicist at the U.S. Army Institute for Religious Leadership and has some insight on uh, the current uh, ethical systems that are being taught, and we want to have a little dialogue about that here. Yeah, so I would just want to uh, play off of what Captain Ordway is addressing and talking about and this computerization of ethical thinking and and moral reasoning that we use. And as as my instruction happens through the Chibolic course, as well as the C4 course, I introduce the students to the ethical moral reasoning model, the ethical reasoning army design methodology model, as well as the joint ethics regulation model. And then we spend a little bit of time talking about the ethical triangle uh, that's been put together by Jack Kim. And in looking at those models, one of the things that I have discerned is that we are, we're doing a, a fairly decent job at the institutionalization of instruction. So we've got it into our program of instruction. We, we put together beautifully done PowerPoint presentations, and we've got great facilitation one of the areas that I think we're lacking in and a gap that I'm, I'm very excited about the model that Captain Ordway is, is giving to us for consideration is it's the operationalization of the application. So it's taking the application of the human aspect of things before we get into the model, before we get into any of the models and looking at how the human dimension begins to affect the way in which we navigate through the linear models. So for instance, without fail, every time I, I show one of these models to the students, hands go up immediately and they go, Hey, this, these are great models. Where's this, where's the, you are here symbol, right? Some of them look like a map. And I'm like, that's a great question. And, and now with this model that, that Captain Ordway is bringing to our awareness, we have a you are here sticker on the models. And it's not on the model itself. It's, it's the pointing the fingers back at you going, okay, you are here. How are you experiencing? What is your emotive state? What is the physiological things that are happening before we go into a James Rest or a, or a Rushworth Kidder model, what's going on? And we need to 
to be aware of that so that when we start making these courses of actions, we're not allowing biases to show up. And, and I think that's the intersection between some of the work that Captain Ordway is doing can come alongside and, and at, enhance what we're already doing. So Captain Ordway, with that in mind, if, if there's something that I need to be considering before launching into one of these models, based on uh, what you have been studying, researching, writing about, what is it that I need to be looking at in myself to make sure that, that I'm going about this decision-making process in the best way possible? I would say the Army design methodology, which we're not really exposed to until we're majors, um, despite the fact that I softly deploy frequently as a captain, the Army design methodology hints at this pretty directly on the first or second page where it says explicitly, don't pretend you actually know what this problem is. The problem before is the problem that, like, you know, the, that the situation presents. Um, and I accept that as true. I think it was Einstein who said that if I only had an hour to solve some catastrophic problem, I'd spend the first 59 minutes defining the problem. We may not have an hour and may not be able to dedicate you know, that percentage toward defining the problem, but I like what it's getting at, which is saying that you are one individual, probably in a complex situation, complicated situation, a lot of parts and difficulty in um, understanding how those parts maybe fit together. You wouldn't be in a emotionally activating situation, if you were completely familiar with it, it would be a known thing. So if you're emotionally activated, you feel like there's an element of your character on the line. My first inclination is that these models that we're currently talking about, that Chaplain Plevka talked about, where it's a recognize the problem, develop a course of action, execute, or evaluate, then execute, is the, those are not actually the first steps. What you need to, to answer your question, I hope, is to realize, like, wait a minute, I am a human being. I am not necessarily, uh, right now anyway, not a piece of software. <laughs> um, Elon Musk might change that in the next 10 years. I don't know. Is that I have an emotional response and a physiological response to something that is occurring around me, something that's happened to me, something that I put myself in. And I need to evaluate or retain, to use a military term, retain those emotions and investigate them. Be a little, be, welcome introspection, be not afraid, you know? And then those emotions, this is the hypothesis here, and I think this is where I try to get a wider target audience, because I understand that not everyone is going to entertain a theological perspective on, you know, right and wrong. We don't have to, that's fine. We all have emotions, we all are human beings, and if we, before we jump into action, which is what many of these models push us toward, is... Embrace the fact that you're a human being for a minute. Listen to your emotions. Don't necessarily follow them. Don't necessarily neglect them. But listen to them and see if there is something in your emotional and physiological response that is picking up on some cue in your environment about what possibly your maybe moral obligations are. You might be angry about something. Don't just fly off the handle and, you know, lash out at someone. Um, and don't completely hide that anger uh, or, or be, you know, passive about it. Try to, try to inspect it and see what is going on. Why are you angry? You might be angry because it's a sense of injustice. Okay, now we're working with something that we can actually get around, some obligation, some moral duty rather, 
might be in conflict with another. And this is where, you know, there is some correlation between um, the standard models with um, James Rest and uh, Rushworth Kidder is there might be a, an understanding that your emotions are actually the ones informing you as to what the conflict is. That's useful information uh, in my mind anyway. And you can't really get at that with those models because it's not even part of the conversation. So I guess to try to condense this really long answer into something that's short is don't rush away from your humanity when you're making a decision that involves significant moral content. Embrace the fact that you're a human. Um, and that is an extreme advantage, in my opinion, over a piece of software. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you, Captain Ordway. And this is this is what I have noticed in my opportunities to facilitate this conversation with the students I have access to, or, or have access to me, rather, is one of the things that we, or that I have done inadvertently, is we have, we have taken this idea of moral reasoning and ethical decision-making, and we have put it into a sterile environment. We have disengaged from humanity. We've divorced ourselves from emotion. We are devoid of any stressful ambiguity that we might find in a combat operation. And we, we ask students to engage in what would you do in an environment that does not inhibit the feeling, the emotion, the passion that one might experience if they are in a combat or a simulated combat operation. And what we would like to do is get the student to see in a classroom setting how this might look, but then to experience it in a simulated situation, for instance, a capstone environment for Chibolic, to, to then recognize those feelings and not discount them or push them away or marginalize them, but use those as a, a framework to then go into some of these decision-making apparatuses that we would call a model. And this is the, the connective tissue between what Captain Ordway's work is doing and, and illuminating ways in which we might be able to do this. Is there other ways? Sure. But this is a way that, that is now coming to the fore that allows us the opportunity to begin to see ways that we might be able to get after taking intellectual and turning it into operational so that we don't end up with those books on the book on the library shelf of things we should not have done. And, uh, when you were talking about this perfect environment, you know, classical environment, air conditioned, 50 minute breaks every, well, 10 minute break every 50 minutes. Um, and a known schedule, you're probably well rested. You have eaten, a meal or two, a cup of coffee, et cetera. And then you're given a situation like something that might come within, you know, US SOCOM community. They have uh, the soft ethics field guide, which presents a well-packaged, uh, flashy business ethics guide that's been repackaged for special operations. Dilemmas that are abstract that involve other people. And they're well-written. I, I mean, I think it's a good starting point, but it, it, gets at a problem that you just mentioned, which is I can be very ethical in the abstract. 
especially if I'm well-rested, especially if the situation doesn't elicit any emotion response, there's no stress response. I'm frankly not even in the situation. I am on high evaluating it from afar, and I have no relationship with the, with the uh, actors in this. And even though if they're real people and this is a real story, well-written case study, I still am not them. So I can pass judgment and I can tell you what I might do, and even worse, I might believe it. Because if I believe that I have now trained via this method, this traditional classroom case study method on moral reasoning, ethical decision-making, is now I'm more worried about the person who believes they're competent at this than I am with the cynic who walks away from this training realizing that this is kind of bogus. I, I mean, I, I don't feel like I really got much out of that. I think I can work with that person. It's the person who feels they're competent because now if I feel I'm competent, I have no motivation to investigate further, to do some homework on my own, to uh, improve myself or to train. So I think, you know, it's necessary uh, to conduct some of this stuff in the classroom, but it's not sufficient to really understand, unearth, develop uh, a certain number of moral reasoning until they experience it because it's far much, (laughs) it's much more difficult to pass judgment on someone you have been working with, sleeping around, showering next to because they're your teammate for the last, you know, 24 months and you're deploying together and you know more about their children, um, you know, and possibly than your own. If, uh, if you spend so much time um, with, you know, the, these teammates and you hear their stories, they're essentially your family. And there will come a time possibly when you'll be asked by that person who you have a strong sense of loyalty to, to do something that violates your moral principles. Now that's going to elicit a feeling that no classroom, unless you're a really empathetic individual and you can really get in the moment, um, is my, my assumption is, is going to elicit. And I think that's when the training begins. Not all I'm asking for is let's not wait till that moment happens because it, is a product of, you know, culminating event while you're in, a, in an environment where the mistakes um, are costly. Let's do it in training where there's an opportunity not only to demonstrate who needs a little more coaching than the next, but also on a positive side, this kind of moral reasoning education, you know, ethics, ethical decision-making education, and then the training aspect, I think will give commanders a lot more opportunity to highlight instances of moral courage within their ranks. I don't know about you, but when I go into a, you know, a military unit's latrine, I see UCMJ from the recent, you know, UCMJ from the most recent quarter on the wall, and I hear about a captain who got gomard and a staff sergeant who got busted down, I do not walk out of the bathroom uh, motivated. Not that that is the goal of going to the bathroom, but certainly we can do better than, um, you know, shaping unit uh, culture than posting UCMJ. I'd love to see a so-and-so at the most recent field training event you know, demonstrated moral courage by doing X, Y, Z, or hearing about that at a motor pool get together, you know, uh, you know, or an award ceremony, this kind of training that I'm advocating for, uh, I think will provide a lot more opportunities for commanders to, to highlight the, the moral success and the ethical decision-making success in their organization, and that will help build a culture as well. Yeah, that, that is a, a phenomenal point. And you have developed a, uh, a tool that can help uh, 
instructors or commanders uh, get after some of this. And when I first saw it, I was like, man, this looks exactly like something that I used in OCS many, many, many years ago. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, that tool that you developed and, and how that can be used to train and coach and reinforce some of these things that you were just talking about? I would love to. Thank you. <laughs> the, the document you're referring to is the you know, draft name here is the Moral Reasoning and Ethical Decision-Making Coach Card. And the term I'd like to underline is coach because this is not an assessment, an evaluation, a uh, rubric for passing pass or fail type judgment on an individual. It is a coaching, not even a counseling, because frankly, counseling often takes the form of negative counseling. So I'm trying to pick a term that is as neutral as possible to indicate to the service member that this is an opportunity to develop a competency. Just like you want to be a better shooter, a better communicator, this is a better decision maker. Really, it's how to be possibly a better soldier, a better human um, in the philosophical sense. And this card, I've designed it to model kind of an ROTC, I think called a blue card, um, which is like a lane evaluative card to where it takes the model um, I've developed and puts it into a packaged form that an OC could observe an existing training event that the unit already has scheduled and already has resourced. And all you're really doing is taking an OC who has some familiarity with the language of moral disengagement, physiological response, environmental factors like time, crunch, hunger, thirst, physical fatigue, mental fatigue, all these things that can play into a person's decision-making. And you've put it into a package form where they can observe an event. What they observe, they they literally mark it down, uh, check the block, so to speak. And then that provides the starting point for a one-on-one anonymous coaching session with this individual where you're not passing judgment. You're simply having them discuss how they felt emotionally, physiologically, how those emotions may have indicated um, which you know, prima facie duties or basic duties, we call them, get rid of the Latin for a moment, uh, might have been in context with, con- uh, contact with each other and maybe in contention with each other. And then if they engaged in moral disengagement, there's an opportunity to uh, assess that and have that discussion. And you're filling this card out with them in like a motivated interviewing technique where it's, again, non-judgmental. You're just simply having the story of why they acted a certain way uh, for better or worse, pulled out of them in the decision-making process that they engage, whether they knew they had one or not, that influenced the final action. You write a narrative in the first person on the backside of this card that then gives them something they can read to themselves. And the idea is what Chaplain Nichols earlier today when we met, um, I want, that is the outcome. Is what she had said was that 15 years ago, she remembers a moment where she was put on the spot by a commander where I believe he had asked her to do something that seemed to violate some, you know, it's being fairly abstract here for obvious reasons, but some deeply held principle. She doesn't remember the exact words. She doesn't remember the exact situation. She remembers how she felt. And she remembers that 15 years ago. And then she talked about a time not too long ago where she felt a similar way about a similar situation. And because she referenced that time 15 years ago, she said, I was more equipped to deal with this. And this time I knew to speak up because I knew what it was like not 15 years ago to not speak up. I am trying to create an opportunity for introspection in this coached environment to where the person 
they're engaging introspection as they're talking with the coach. And then right after that, with a narrative on the backside of the card, they have an opportunity for reflection about, hey, I felt a certain way. I realized that I might not have fulfilled the duties that my emotions may or may not have been indicating, or I morally disengaged, or even better, I actually demonstrated moral courage. So when I feel this way again, I know that maybe I should go with my gut. And then when they have the card, they can reflect on that. So that next time before they make it, they are in, or when they're in a situation, now they can engage in pre-reflection. They can get ahead of the cycle of um, rush to action or uh, ignore my emotion or jump from my emotion to action because they will have something, some exposure to possibly a similar situation. And you do that enough, we get to practice, practice habit, habit, ideally excellence. I don't think I'm saying anything new there uh, based on what, you know, philosophy and moral psychology. I, I think you're in pretty good company, yes. you know, with, the, with that. Well, we're going to start to wrap things up here. Chaplain Plevka, do you have uh, any closing thoughts, questions, observations? Yeah, just a couple of ways in which I think this can be of great value, not only to the chaplain corps, but at the army at large. And so what we see before us is an opportunity to take what has already been done add to it the human dimension, which I think would resonate with chaplains, and it should resonate with commanders, especially if we really do mean people first and what that might look like. And it provides an opportunity for team leaders, commanders, platoon sergeants to have a resource that they can use or utilize to observe, to help coach and see if there might be a gap in character development this also could be a resource or tool that a, a battalion chaplain might use as they're advising a commander and helping a commander navigate through a tricky situation that might need some closed-door confidential communication but gives them a resource where we can walk them through this dialogue and then they can use that as they do some reflection before they make or, or adjudicate their decision. So there's there's cross-pollination, there's some collaboration across the spectrum of this being taught in the future to uh, the students at West Point and being taught to the students at the Chaplain Corps. And we've got a generation of young chaplains coming up and a generation of young leaders coming up, and they meet together and they have this common language of understanding this idea of moral reasoning and ethical decision-making because of this card they're familiar with. And I think this is a, a great opportunity for us to begin to take the institutional domain, connect it to the operational domain, and find ways in which we can mutually support one another to get after the common good of, a, of an organization that is built on character moral development, and and use this as a tool for moral leadership, which I think is one of the things that we're supposed to be doing as chaplains. I think I read that somewhere. Well, Captain Ordway, thank you so much for your time today. I want to give you uh, the opportunity to, to share some last words with us, and uh, so appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and record this. Uh, I, I texted Chaplain Plevka furiously the other day, and I was like, do you think he'd be willing to sit down and record a podcast? So hold on, let me ask. And so I was really excited uh, when you were willing to do this. Uh, and I want to give you the, the last word here. Well, I don't want you to give me too much credit. My first question back was, is it audio only? So uh, after that, I said, 
Yes. Uh, before I, I don't know what my final comments will be, but I, I do need to say thanks to the Institute of Religious Leadership for uh, inviting me down. Um, really, what began as a quick conversation at the Maneuver Center of Excellence has turned into, um, I mean, I've learned a lot from coming here and speaking with everyone who volunteered their time today for two hours to talk about moral reasoning and ethical decision-making. So thank you to the, the wider group there. And then I need to thank First Special Forces Command, of course, uh, because they continue to support uh, my agitation for improving ethics education uh, and training. And they also funded the trip. So there, there is that. And I do appreciate the continued support from the command there. Um, the last, this is something we talked about at lunch, I guess the last thing I would say, and I have uh, a lot of empathy for this kind of question, but also some skepticism is when invariably the question will come, let's say that a unit entertains this idea. They're willing to pilot it. Uh, the operational side is, hey, what's, what's the return on investment here? And that is a hard question for me to answer uh, in the short term because, one, we haven't really tried something like this. But also I, I get concerned that the, the question is so focused on military outcomes that we forget that at the end of the day, you, you have people in your formation who are not going to be in the military their entire life, and they're going to have to answer to themselves, their family members, um, for what they did and did not do in a variety of environments, garrison or otherwise. That seems to me enough of a motivating factor to, to go a little bit further in um, you know, possibly resourcing, uh, dedicating some time towards this moral reasoning, ethical decision-making. And I guess in the near term, my response would be, look, look this is not a nice-to-do thing. This is not extra icing on an already you know, built cake. When a service member is deployed, whether soft or not, but especially in soft, that's kind of the target audience for me. And they have a moral transgression, especially one that, you know, makes the news. That does more than just damage uh, the ability of that mission to get accomplished. It does more than um, harm relationships with partner forces, which are strategic. Uh, I'm actually concerned. And it, it also, in addition to that, it, it, I would think, and I have two young kids, but I imagine when they get to be of age to join the military, I'm going to be looking at, like, what's the current culture of the military? What is acceptable? What is not? Do organizations hold um, themselves accountable? And if they don't, I think I would be inclined as a parent to go, eh, maybe you're doing Peace Corps or, uh, hmm. you know, some other organization. Uh, I'd like to be able to, to recommend the military. And I, I think this is the kind of ethics education and training, moral reasoning, rather, that will keep us in a position to be what we say we already are, which is you know, an example for society, not just an example of society. And the most important thing, all those instrumental reasons aside, uh, the kind of intrinsic reason I am interested in this is because the goal, I would think, is that when a person finishes their time in the military, they are able to look at themselves with a certain amount of pride, possibly, you know, the right kind of pride and saying, look, I started out as Ben and I finished as Ben. I grew along the way. I never violated, uh, or if I did, I at least owned up to it, a sense of who I was. I didn't forget where I came from um, because we know that a lot of folks are struggling when they get out of the military. And, you know, the most catastrophic consequences of that are obviously what makes the news, but, you know, suicide is, is, is the end result, I think, of a long line of moral transgression or, or not, uh, you know, not, not responding properly to the moral, you know, the moral terrain, I guess. 
and you know there's just been increased interest in moral injury, I don't see the disconnect between what I'm proposing um, and that topic. I'm just trying to get ahead of it. I think we're dealing with problems on the back end with uh, suicide that, and I know this may sound extreme, but I think this is one way to get ahead of that. Um, and I think it's worth a shot. I'm happy to entertain any conversations about it. So hope you put my contact information out there. Send some emails. All right. Well, Captain Ordaway, thank you for joining us on the Community Conversations podcast. It's been a real joy having you here. Uh, now, I know you've been sitting here talking to a couple of uh, ethics nerds, but I think what you shared has profound implications uh, for anyone who's willing to entertain it. Uh, make sure as you listen to the podcast, if you enjoyed it, that you subscribe in your favorite podcasting app. And while you're at it, leave us a rating or review, which helps other people discover this content. Thank you for listening and join us again next time for another community conversation.